with John, and uh, we have a four-part part, uh, series in mind, a four-part series podcast, uh, that I think is one of the most interesting. I'm really excited about this series and, and where we're taking it. And I have to admit that uh, uh, this, we're, we're leaping in here a little bit. It's water that's a bit deep for me, and uh, John is, uh, we've both read portions of this, but uh, John is in the midst of this, and I think can, can help us uh, tread this water. But what, what our idea is, is to, first of all, just discuss the genealogy of modern theology. That is that we're working in a context here uh, that we often, uh, we don't stand outside or step outside of it long enough to get the idea that theology, uh, as we have it, is is very much shaped by notions of the secular and, and uh, the, a frame of reference uh, that uh, people like uh, uh, Taylor and Milbank and others then have outlined, and this is the, the grand work of you know John Milbank and Radical Orthodoxy. We won't get to that today, but we're just trying to set up and, and look at the concepts that they put out. And then, it, so that part one, we'll look at the genealogy of modern theology. Then we want to talk about the concept of the secular as developed in Charles Taylor's big work, uh, and John Milbank. J- John, what, what the two works there by Taylor and Milbank, what, what are we looking at with both Taylor and Milbank in think, primary? Okay, so John Milbank has a book, Social Theory and Theology, and he is tracing uh, where modernity comes from, where the secular comes from, or the idea of the secular comes from, because neither of these uh, guys hold to secularization theory as others have. And doing that, looking back to the Middle Ages through the Protestant Reformation and looking at both philosophy and theology. And Taylor actually wrote his book after Milbank's uh, initial theology and social theory, and that's a secular age. And so he is sort of broadening out what he had already done in the sources of the self and looking at the history of philosophy and theology and where do we get the concept of the secular? How do we end up where we are today, in other words? And these guys, uh, uh, if people are not familiar with, uh, you know, Taylor, uh, that he he and Milbank just have to be two of the impressive uh, scholars of of this, the 21st century. I, I can't, you listen to these guys, their breadth of understanding is quite astonishing, and so too it's as it's reflected in in each of their their major works. So, and then after we do Taylor and Milbank, part three of the the third podcast, uh, we'll look at the theological responses to what is called modernity. And by that point, hopefully, we'll have a clear grasp on what we mean by modernity, that it is a peculiar frame of reference. Uh, that both uh, in a Catholic theological context and in radical orthodoxy, there is a, a clear uh, response that in, in, a, in a strange sense, uh, there is even a kind of lack of awareness outside of those two frames of reference. And then uh, in our fourth podcast, we'll look at uh, 
how do we how do we continue, or what is the theological project uh, in in our present time period? How do we move on from here? But today, then, we want to talk about the medieval Renaissance, the and moving up then into the beginnings then of where we get the secular and even you know what what is the uh, genealogy of the idea of the secular. And so we will start, and we'll have John define for us and discuss a little bit uh, what uh, has been called the medieval renaissance. Explain, John, what that is referencing. Yeah, the phrase the medieval renaissance is one that's being used uh, more presently than even 50 years ago. Uh, people used to think of the Middle Ages as sort of a dark time period where not much was done. But the Middle Ages are aptly named ages, plural, because there are several Middle Ages. And in the 1200s, and a little bit prior in the 1100s, 12th and 13th centuries, you have a world that is shaped by a religious engagement between Muslims, uh, Catholic thinkers, Christian thinkers, or just Christians at this time period, and also Jewish thinkers. And you also have the beginning of the medieval university. So you have the University of Paris founded about this time. You have the University of Oxford founded about this time. And the quality of the discussions and the theological conversations that are going on are almost unparalleled, maybe even in our own time period. And What's coming together is there's a rediscovery of Aristotle's texts by the West. So the Muslim thinkers have been translating Aristotle and commenting on Aristotle for for quite some time, but the West didn't have those writings. And perhaps what's so important about that is the West had always had Plato and was reading those types of things, but is the difference in the type of writing that Aristotle has that we have of Aristotle and uh, that we have of Plato. Of Plato's works, we have only exoteric works. We have the works that he wrote for publishing. They're highly polished. They don't get into some more speculative doctrines that uh, perhaps Plato and Socrates and Aristotle would have been discussing. Um, But with Aristotle, we have just the opposite. We only have his esoteric works. We have nothing that Aristotle would have published for the general populace. So we have a lot more speculative theology and ideas. And the way Muslim scholars had been engaging these works for centuries also uh, adds to that commentaries of great depth and profundity. That's brought to Europe, and Christians and Jewish thinkers are poring over these texts all in conversation with each other, especially in Paris around the university there. And what originally seemed like a challenge to the autonomy of Christianity in Europe ends up being an opportunity for uh, Thomas Aquinas's great works. And what he is doing is trying to say, no, even with the rediscovery of these ancient texts, uh, Christianity is still not only valid, but it's true and has meaning for our lives and is still perhaps the best way to understand reality. So rather than engaging Aristotle in such a way that privileges ancient or or pagan thought, like what you'll get in the later uh, Renaissance that we think about in the 1400s and the 1500s, is Aquinas coming up with a synthesis that privileges theology, uh, especially Christian theology, but is able then to reach out and actually engage with other ways of thinking and philosophies that are present in the world. And this is all taking place in the 1200s. 
Let me make um, a, a kind of non sequitur statement that uh, that you know what you get. Uh, I, I think with the the engagement of Aquinas and his, the encounter is then kind of what uh, theology is to be about, what Christians are to be about. That this uh, that the expanded sense that you're getting in what we're calling the medieval Renaissance is really then the the the, the theological project to always restate uh, then what. A Christian understanding looks like in this frame of reference, and that seems to be what you're describing for us. Yes, very much so. So for Aquinas, he had a Christian theology that was able to actually engage the world in a real way. So it wasn't a ghettoized theology that sometimes uh, we get later on. And you're referencing at a kind of, you're saying it's a synthesis a synthesis of, uh, is this the, the idea of a synthesis between a Christian and Greek understanding? Oh, or oh no. what do you mean uh, here by synthesis? No, not at all. Uh, the synthesis is actually just a way of understanding God and the world and our human place in that. So the classical synthesis is a synthesis between God, humanity, and uh, the created world, created things, and how those fit together. So... While Thomas and other theologians during this time period see those things as being distinct, they're not collapsing creation into the divine or anything like that, and also have a way of distinguishing what a human being is from other created things, see all of those things as participating in a cosmos, which to distinguish a cosmos from just the way we speak now, a universe, a cosmos is an ordered whole. Whereas a universe is just the whole total, sum total of material things in existence. So there's no randomness to the way that um, these medieval thinkers would have been seeing the world or the cosmos. God, of course, is... is, Go ahead. it's It's a key point. I just wanted to underline that. What you're saying now, I think that in describing the worldview, then, as the synthesis of the world, God... You know, and uh, in a sense, this is precisely what we've lost. Yes, absolutely. This this is the defining characteristic of what Taylor and Milbank and others will call the lost world. And and I mean, the the question is, I mean, what you know, that can we even regain such a synthesis? Uh, but that we'll come to, but, but I think first, the first step is to recognize, okay, here is this cosmos, this, this synthesis in which people just sort of, uh, it was simply their frame of reference in which they lived and moved and thought. And, and what is going to happen is in some way we're going to lose that. Yes. So that's actually, uh, I mean, people have asked, why does Thomas Aquinas Uh, quote Aristotle as much as he does. And of course, Aristotle actually isn't one of the top people that he quotes. He quotes Augustine and Dionysius, uh, the Areopagite, the most. But um, what he is doing uh, with Aristotle is actually, during this time period, Aristotle is perceived as a threat to this classical synthesis. So Aristotle is speaking of the world in a way that doesn't necessarily include uh, God as permeating all things and being active and being um, a God who is the the living God of Scripture that engages creation, sustains creation, 
and so on. And so that's Aquinas's his the task that he perceives himself to be on is to say, no, hold on, uh, Aristotle may be brilliant, he may have a lot to add to our conversation, but that doesn't necessarily take away from our Christian way of thinking about things, and, which would be the classical synthesis. So he, he begins there, he begins with who God is, and then works out to how we as Christians can engage the world because of our relationship with God and to God. And so there is, I mean, this has been my perception of both uh, Plato and Aristotle, that, uh, that while there is the Christian engagement of, the, uh, uh, of both, uh, the struggle, and of course the question is, I'm not, I am not always, it's not always clear to me that Christians have won this struggle, is to maintain a synthesis in the face of a form of thought that would lapse into a dualism. Yes, so there's, yeah, so we'll definitely get into that as the conversation goes on. There are, uh, we usually just talk about scholasticism as it's this big one monolithic thing, but uh, there is uh, late Protestant scholasticism, there is late medieval scholasticism, there is um, the scholasticism that you have during Aquinas' time period and then previous, which actually is more of about a form of writing than it is about a synthesis of Greek and uh, Christian thought. Which uh, I assume, uh, you know, usually we refer to Anselm as being the father of scholasticism, but actually that may not make, make much sense in the conversation we're having now because uh, that what we're describing, the, I think there's a huge uh, difference in the way that Anselm is going to take up Plato and the way that Aquinas is going to engage Aristotle. Yeah, or even, I mean, um, so then you have an engagement there of Greek philosophy in both cases, but that's not the first engagement you have with the Christian theology and Greek philosophy. So, uh, yeah, we probably have had too narrow a view. And, uh, I think just Protestants in general have had too narrow a view of what scholasticism is or what it means as Christians to engage philosophy. So uh, the, we have, so whatever it is that we have in Aquinas, the idea is that in a sense the Christian frame is holding together and, and the idea is that in this frame uh, there is, there is a clear understanding of God uh, integrated into the world, not a dualism, not a pantheism. Uh, so when I say God integrated into the world, I don't mean completely subsumed or part of. And so the, the, what is meant then in this Renaissance, in this synthesis, is that there is a coherent frame that is going to fall apart. Yes, yeah. So a way of... Uh, speaking about that transition is really uh, about how people view God. And so one way of talking about that may be oversimplistic, but I think it serves as a good um, analogy, is to look at the way Thomas Aquinas talks about causality versus the way the people that come directly after him will talk about causality. So Thomas talks about God as being the primary cause. By that, he means the material, the formal, the final, and the efficient cause. In other words, God is the creator and the sustainer, the one who makes all things, makes all things what they are, and has a plan and an end for all things. 
So in no way is God simply a, a type of first mover uh, for Thomas Aquinas. That's because he, when he thinks about God, he thinks about God in the same way that the patristics did. He thinks about God in terms of God's wisdom and God's love, and notably, Scripture also talks about God as being both wise and loving in the sense that that is who God is. God is love. God is wisdom. What's going to come directly after this is people are going to emphasize God's sovereignty, God's power, God's will. But to emphasize those things is to misunderstand who God is because God's power, or we only think about God's power actually, in terms of God's relationship to creation rather than in terms of God's relationship to himself. So when we talk about the relations in the Trinity, we can talk about wisdom and love as God relates to himself. When and we talk again, about... Go ahead. I, again, I think you're saying things that are going to you know, it, it may sound like, oh, this is kind of academic and, and ancient, but I think what you are describing for us is that, in fact, in other words, this is not simply a conversation that has been had, but the idea of the shift from uh, understanding uh, God in terms of Trinitarian love and then the move into primarily uh, comprehending God through sovereignty, yeah, it, it, it ends up in these formal theological systems uh, that we're going to inherit, inherit both, you know, through forms of Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, but it also, again, just becomes, uh, it, it's just sort of the way that we begin to think outside of the synthesis uh, that we're describing. Yeah, so, I mean, think about modern-day theologians that are even aware of this, we still tend towards questions that deal with God as being sovereign and all-powerful before we begin to ask questions about who God is as all-loving and all-wise. All and, so, and so maybe even the word synthesis is still our key word here, because part of what breaks apart is a synthesis of understanding in which uh, the primary uh, synthesizing uh, form is the love of God that shifts to sovereignty. That's yes, yes, very true. Yeah, and we're still very much in the midst of that. And that then comes about you're describing in the late Middle Ages through two forms of thought: uh, nominalism and voluntarism. Run that run down for us then. Uh, what what is nominalism and and why does that impact the classical synthesis? Yes. So, well, to be fair, I, I we probably need to mention a few historical events that happen uh, during this time period as well that inspire people to think the way that they do, and that's that after Thomas Aquinas dies in twelve seventy four, you have a series of disasters in Europe. Uh, you have the Hundred Years' War where people are fighting over the sovereignty of England. You have, but they're fighting in France as well, so they're fighting on the continent uh, and in England. You have the plagues, the Black Death, that kill off, I think, about a third of the population, which is no small thing. And then you have the Great Western Schism, a schism, rather, uh, the schism between the popes. So you have a pope in Avignon, France, 
and you have a pope in Italy, and then for a while you have a third pope that was supposed to replace those two before the church is able to get its act together and have only one uh, presiding bishop of Rome living in Rome and um, uh, sort of in charge again. But what that does to people is it shakes up the way that they view reality. It breaks apart the synthesis in their minds so that it doesn't seem anymore as if God is really present to us in reality, or that um, external reality, the things that we perceive, even have a meaning that participate in God. So that's the term to nominalism. Nominalism being a way of thinking that says, uh, really it says that there are no universals, and the only types of universals that we have are sort of fake universals that we encounter in language. So we still talk about being, because just to talk about human beings in any real sense, we have some concept of being that that fits with, but they would say that that universal is in name only. It doesn't actually exist. So what we have in the world that we perceive are just particulars of things, and there is no universal meaning that holds anything together. And a way of thinking about that is that it's over and against the realism of Thomas Aquinas, um, and that's who they are interacting with. So Thomas Aquinas, there's lots of different kinds of realism, but for Aquinas, uh, realism was that there is meaning in the world, and that meaning is there because it's in some way proportionate to meaning, which would be God, or there is being out there. We are we have being because that is in some way proportionate to God, who is being. So for Thomas, God doesn't correspond to anything. God is God. But we ourselves would correspond to God in uh, dissimilar ways, usually. There's some similarity, but mostly dissimilar ways. But that's how the world that we live in has any meaning at all. Uh, once you evacuate the world of meaning, then that sort of leaves, um, well, that, that leaves the door wide open <laughs> for all sorts of philosophies and a way of thinking that just doesn't take the world seriously and doesn't take humans seriously as well. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to get us off track here, but the, the the a term that is you know we're, we're, that is used the idea of the analogia entus is uh, the idea in Aquinas, of course, is that that what it means to, uh, the analogous aspect of it has to do with a real world participation. Uh, in the being of God or in 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 the divine, uh, that this term then is going to come down to us through nominalism and then through well well actually Thomas Aquinas never uses the term analogiantus, so that's a that's a fifteenth that's a sixteenth century term um, and very much. It actually has to do with the orders in the Catholic Church in the 16th century, and then um, and that's in the midst of the Counter-Reformation, which is essentially very nominalistic. And um, it's not only, it's picked up later in the 20th century and applied back as a way of thinking about what Aquinas is doing, or Aquinas is used to understand what we should mean when we use a term like analogientus. Now, Thomas does use uh, analogy as a way of doing theology, a way of speaking, but it pertains to his philosophy of language um, and understanding more than anything else. So the, uh, what we get later in Karl Barth and others, you know, Analogiantus is the Antichrist, uh, that in as much as this is 
directed at Thomas Aquinas, what you're saying is that's a that's a mistake. Well, he definitely pertains to the conversation, but um, yeah, to to have the conversation in that way, it's already to have understood the problems of nominalism and voluntary. Well, you should already have understood those things, and then are um, talking about how Thomas Aquinas would give us a better way of thinking about analogy and. Um, how the world and God are in some part of a order. Uh, well, that's not the right way to say that. How God has created a world that is an ordered whole that we participate with him in. Okay, I, and I, I didn't mean to draw us off track here. But what you, but then what you've described in the development of the, the Middle Ages is, I mean, uh, what, the plague you're talking about, is it like a third of the world? <laughs> I mean, well, a third of Europe, yeah. I mean, of, of Europe, yes. Of middle the Middle East as well, but I don't know. Uh, I know the third of Europe for sure just dies. So, and very rapidly. And so you would you would begin to you know uh, think that uh, maybe uh, that one understanding. In other words, there, there there's this overwhelming evil uh, that is that people are confronted with. And and there is a sense that this just impacts everything. Yeah, so the normal question arises, well, if God is good, why is this happening? And um, so it opens the door to start thinking about the world as very much separate from God. And um, also then, um, you get a picture of God with voluntarism that looks at God as all-powerful and sovereign rather than necessarily even good or wise or loving. Uh, that we Can we describe it as there, that God is separated out? In other words, if we, the, the synthesis, the frame of reference that we have in Aquinas, uh, be, you know, where there is not a dualism, and in fact the resistance to a Greek or Platonic or even an Aristotelian dualism uh, that in the late Middle Ages, in fact, what is developing is a dualism. Yes, yeah, very much so. So, so first by just evacuating any real meaning or evacuating God's presence from external reality. Uh, and so what we have are, you know, in, in a sense, uh, this this almost takes us right up into the kind of nihilism. Uh, I mean, they're, they're obviously not, they're still Christians, they're still, they're still believing, but whatever it is that they're believing is profoundly different uh, between the Middle and Late Middle Ages. Yes, yeah. Their perception of the way the world works is very much different. So that you see a shift in paradigms or a horizon shift has taken place. And tell us who is this, uh, uh, tell us the key figures that would be connected with both nominalism and voluntarism. Okay, so William of Ockham lives from 1285 to 1347. So this is just right after uh, the death of Thomas Aquinas. And he is, he actually, how all this comes about with him is a dispute between the Franciscans and the Pope about property. 
And so they're questioning uh, how those kinds of property laws work. And so it's also telling that this conversation is rooted in a juridical type conversation because that's what Luther and Calvin will pick up on. So they're going to apply that way of thinking about law directly to God and to Scripture just a few hundred years later. And so Calvin is a lawyer, and this is yes. kind of the frame. Luther of Luther was training to be a lawyer before he becomes a monk as well, and so yeah, very much so. Uh, that's the way they're thinking, and what that is uh, for Occam is he wants to say that um, the particulars of things don't matter when he's talking with the Pope and it's over ownership. So he's trying to say you can have use of something without having ownership of it because the particular of you actually practically owning it doesn't really matter. It's just what uh, the Pope thinks, or uh, he'll apply this to justification. It's just what's in the mind of God. And so that's definitely uh, linked to Luther and Calvin. And then you have Duns Scotus, who uh, is famous for the university of being, um, talking about the world and uh, talking about God in univocal ways and thinking that there is this kind of one-to-one correlation. But where that's most important or why it pertains to this conversation is because there's a turn to thinking about God in terms of power and sovereignty, as we've said. And what they're imagining is that the way that we conceive power and the way that we conceive of cause and effect, which would be efficient causality, is really the only type of causality that matters, and we can take our notion of that and apply it directly to God. So what God becomes in this time period is really just the propositional first cause of all things, which Thomas Aquinas has been accused of this, but that's he he also believes in God as a final cause, as a formal cause, as a, a material cause, uh, not just as an efficient cause. So he has God much more intimately intertwined in our lives and in the direction of our lives and in our futures than um, what's going to come directly after. They just will collapse causality into efficient causality, cause and effect. Which this is, uh, I mean, this is, again, the, uh... The key idea that's going to come out, I don't mean to jump too far ahead, but we're going to get science, the scientific revolution. We're going to, you know, the, uh, the Newtonian revolution, the Cartesian shift that isn't all of this in some way connected then to this, this transition. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So that, um, I mean, if we could start talking about the Reformation a little bit. Luther is educated at the University of Erfurt, which is a nominalist institution, and he's noted for his Occamism while he's a youth in school. And so Luther is very much a part of that conversation and about furthering those notions, uh, those philosophical notions. And he's going to apply that to his theology, especially of grace, of justification. That's the way they're now reading Augustine, the parts of Augustine that already seem to agree with Calvinism. Um, They're going to read those now through a nominalistic and voluntaristic lens so that when Augustine talks about predestination and sovereignty and power, that they imagine that what they mean is exactly what he meant. And so they've got a theological authority now from the early church and are trying to tell the story as if this is the way it's always been or the way it always should have been. Let's uh, let me back up a little bit that with uh, and and try to trace this. And and again, I may be uh, that, 
You know, what you often get when, when in somebody like Bart in the later discussion is that you move from the analogy of being to the university of being, and then there there is this idea of a kind of, the idea of uh, attaining to the being of God in and through the being of the world. But what you're describing here is that actually uh, that it, it, it is uh, a, a being that is focused, or the university of being is really focused then on a particular understanding of cause and effect. Have I stated that wrongly? Well, no, I would agree. I would just say that the conversation that Bart's having, he has real and legitimate concerns. And um, why that conversation is happening in the 20th century is because it's a post-Reformation and a post-Counter-Reformation con- conversation. So that the way those, I mean, these terms are going to have another 500 years of history after the Reformation, and that's going to color the conversation that Bart's going to have with Balthazar and Shavara. But before the Reformation, um, you know, in the 1300s is when Scotus is living and talking about the university of being, it very much is um, a conversation that is around efficient causality, how God does things, how God relates to the world, not in the sense of natural theology, because that just doesn't make sense to anybody during this time period. There's still, and this is something Charles Taylor points out, that in 1500 even, it would have been impossible for somebody to conceive of God as not existing. Um, whereas now, I mean, by the 20th century, uh, that's it's almost inevitable that you question the existence of God in some way. Um, so that's, that's a difference. It's a real difference that I think we should take account of. So that the way the, this conversation functions before the Reformation or before the Enlightenment is different because the way people understand the world is still different. This is the, you know, William James talks about the idea, a kind of a, a lived possibility, a lived, you know, that, that for many of us or many people in the West that, you know, he uses the illustration, it would not have been you know, being Hindu or being even Muslim may not have been a lived possibility, and that's yes. what you're. That's what you're describing is that actually in in this long period of time, uh, even the idea of what we'll call atheism or uh, you know non-belief or even doubt uh, that it's it's going to function very differently. Uh, there may have been. You know, I, you know, people that, uh, you know, that there there are people who who in some way reject that Christian frame of reference, but they do it in an, in other words, if you're a bank robber or a, you're you're a Christian bank robber in terms of your worldview. Yeah, absolutely. So that uh, I think of Spinoza as being a good example of this because he's called both an atheist and a, a God drunk man by somebody, uh, by one of his contemporaries. Um, and what you get with Spinoza, who is not a Christian and uh, really not even that good of a Jewish person, um, is. It seems like atheism, sort of, in some of his later works, except he'll still make references to Christ as having the mind of God. Um, he, you know, the closest he could get to atheism is just sort of a natural religion that has uh, some God at the beginning, or uh, at least a God-like 
first efficient cause at the beginning. And I think that's as close as you could get. Uh, even during the uh, early stages of the Enlightenment, that's the 16th, uh, 17th century, rather, when we're talking about Spinoza, the 1600s. So that um, the conversation that they're having in the 20th century is just a little bit different, even in reference to natural theology, because it's natural theology over and against atheism, rather than uh, whatever natural theology would have been before. The, uh, let me let me throw another wrench into the works here. That um, the great chain of being is is kind of one way that this has been described. Who is it? Arthur Lovejoy who lays out this understanding uh, that you know. And what you have in the great chain of being is it, it kind of gets at the frame of reference that uh, and 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 it seems like that there is a break in that is that for the first time people can conceive of the world, at least in the, in the, in the Christian West as in, in, in some way they're beginning to be able to conceive of it. Uh, in in what Charles Taylor is going to call an imminent frame. That is that they're going to be see in a, a kind of Newton Newtonian framework, uh, but the causal power of God can be in some way explained by by simply power itself. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it is very much a turn to materialism, and so it's it's not a sh shocking surprise that that's where all of this ends up in the twentieth century as some form of atheistic materialism. But I took I took us off track there. You're describing Luther and Calvin. Then are are uh, both uh, you know we're in the midst of the Reformation. Describe for us then the difference between the Renaissance and the Reformation. Oh, and of course that's a that's a <laughs> distinction. I'm probably not super qualified to talk about that. Re the Renaissance is much more a turn towards the classical world as a way forward. So both of these movements, with the Reformation and the Renaissance notably, are looking backwards to move forward. Uh, the Renaissance, thinking in terms of Plato and Aristotle, and um, but even in in ways that aren't as aren't as theologically as somebody like Thomas Aquinas would have been doing just a few hundred years. You know, they're thinking about architecture and literature and forms of these things, um, and it's a, a way that people are thinking about how to have progress or how to move forward and make a, a better world. And they, they tend to look backwards and see these ancient ruins that are so much more grand than anything that they're building at that time. So the Renaissance is very much focused on a humanism in that sense, an artistic type humanism. Whereas in the Reformation, it's uh, a drive against, of course, corruption in the Catholic Church, and what they're doing is trying to rediscover uh, the patristic period, or the early church, as a way of having a more simplified Christianity that is going to be more holy. Um, and, uh, and both of these things I mean, it, it are happening in a time period when the world is not necessarily thought of as connected to God. So in a sense, in the 1200s, people were still very immoral. I'm sure you mentioned this actually with the bank robber story, 
there was immorality and there was morality, but there was never all morality because God stood in judgment of everything. But now, in, as you move towards the Renaissance and the Reformation, they're starting to make room for this space that uh, does it have anything to do with God or does human freedom ha- mean something that we can truly uh, sin or we can make our own way in a, in a way that wasn't even thought possible only a few hundred years before. So you have people thinking like we could actually become pagans again. Now notice that there's still not any real atheism, but oh, perhaps you can revive paganism. Or, and so Luther is sort of reacting in a, in a way to the excesses of the Renaissance papacies uh, and saying, no, we need to focus more on God and holiness and get back to uh, correct doctrine in a simple way is going to be the best way. We need to cut away these excesses. But they're all excesses in belief. They're never a subtraction in belief. And and I think that may, maybe uh, let me come, uh, you know, I think a misunderstanding uh, perhaps of Luther, you know, when he talks about sola fide and sola scriptura, that we're going to turn to, you know, faith alone and and of course, it's not that he's turning completely away from the the church fathers, but in fact is going to appeal to the church fathers in his own form and appeal to the original languages of Scripture in his own form of a humanist turn. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, think of somebody like Desiderius Erasmus as a humanist. Probably um, one of the most famous humanists that have ever lived, even today. And he gives us a Greek New Testament that's uh, annotated and, you know, a critical edition of the Greek New Testament. But Erasmus is always a Catholic. He dies a Roman Catholic. So his humanism wasn't in any way a turn away from belief in God or religion. It was simply uh, a turn towards what are the human capabilities in reference to God. And the way that they're thinking is in terms of God is not only being all-powerful, but perfect and all-powerful. So God has created something that doesn't need him as much as people had previously thought. And so we we have room to work and do things and develop ourselves in the arts and uh, and other forms. And maybe that that leads us to a discussion uh, of the Enlightenment, that uh, from this point then, and this is, of course, it's from the perspective of the Enlightenment that they're going to look back and talk about the the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages, because what they're perceiving is that they've arrived at a place in which human learning and understanding uh, has reached the pinnacle of progress. Yes, and it's because of a separation between revelation and reason. And that separation is now thinkable because of the constructs that you have in uh, philosophy like nominalism. So that you have people thinking that, well, revelation is probably true, but it's hard to get to the truth of revelation because you've also got all of this imaginative stuff by those primitive prophets and um, <laughs> you know so on and so forth. But uh, human reason could probably figure out all of this anyway. And it could figure out these things in such a precise form that we wouldn't have all of the imaginative excesses and discrepancies that you get in Scripture. So let's just use human reason instead. So it's still theistic. 
it's still even thinking of the world as God's creation, but it's uh, a creation that is intelligible because a perfect God has set it in motion and doesn't really need to be a part of the system. And he's also created us well enough that we can uh, take part in that system as well in, in the sense that we can figure out things. And we could probably even know the mind of God through human reason. And so you can see where that would lead directly into enlightenment deism. And of course, what's happening, it's already begun to happen in the Reformation, is that you have the scientific revolution uh, that has begun around Copernicus and then Galileo and then through, uh, you know, a, a con the, it's always interesting to me that you have Galileo, who's a contemporary of Descartes, and so that there there is a kind of uh, benefit, there is a kind of fruit that is being reaped uh, in, a, in a very practical understanding of the universe uh, from the shifts that are taking place. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So, so it's not, um, and I think that's what's so challenging to think about this is because we enjoy such a comfortable world that has been built by people thinking that they can have progress by turning inward to human reason and other things. And what we sometimes miss is the evil that's been unleashed as well so that we can have our comforts. Um, but it is all a part of what has happened. So that, that is definitely the lineage or the genealogy of um, nominalism, voluntarism, the late Middle Ages, the Reformation, this turn towards viewing the world in a different way, a way that is more secular is the word that I guess we'll get to. Are you standing in the middle of the freeway, John? <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting outside and all of a sudden there's been an increase in traffic. So. <laughs> Uh, and, and this is not to say that I, I think we shouldn't use too blunt of an instrument here uh, to just reference, you know, somebody like Copernicus. I think that, that he's a very complicated figure and that, that his own understanding, you know, he's still a good Catholic, that Descartes is still a... These guys are, none of them, it's not like they're, uh, that what they're doing, they perceive, ex except until you get to da Galileo, as a confrontation with the authority of the church, um, or even with that frame of reference, but they're beginning then, uh, you know, to to you know the thing with, that's happening with Copernicus that he's actually uh, using mathematics as a kind of direct application to an understanding of reality that, in some way, uh, people in in uh, you know, in an Aristotelian, Catholic Aristotelian frame of reference, uh, simply could not, in other words, it was a challenge not to a biblical orthodoxy, it was a challenge to uh, the universe as it had been imagined by Aristotle. But of course, what's happening with, you know, with the place that Copernicus's work is published is the, the University of Wittenberg, where Luther himself uh, is is teaching, uh, and the Protestant Reformation then is going to have, not that they necessarily, uh, you know, not that Luther, that they're necessarily believing Copernicus, but they are, there is a flexibility and a greater degree of acceptance uh, that seems to come down 
Uh, and so all of this, you know, to, to just describe it in too blunt of term, oh, that scientism or the scientific revolution is in some way a, uh, a falling apart of the classical synthesis may be too simplistic uh, uh, of a description. Yeah, I mean, in some senses, it's a reaction to... Uh... It's not that they were challenging the authority of the church. The church's authority had already been challenged by the cataclysmic events. Uh, the you know having three popes, for example, having a, a hundred years war that the church can't uh, seem to solve, and you have good Christians slaughtering each other. Um, those type or the Black Death. How do you how do you process something like a third of the population dying off? Um, it's not so much that they're challenging the churches of authority, but the church's authority had been challenged, and now they're trying to find some other authority to ground themselves in. And thus you get the figure of Rene Descartes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Who is, I mean, you know, <laughs> even more than that for him, he's in the middle of the Thirty Years' War uh, as a soldier. And he's thinking there's got to be some end to this fighting. So let's appeal to something that we can all agree about. And in a sense, he hits upon it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that he's going to turn to a human reason grounded in human interiority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we uh, that this is the beginnings. And maybe we need to talk as a kind of, I, I'm not sure how far we're into this conversation, but maybe then we can talk about the beginnings of the Enlightenment and then what that leads into German idealism. Yeah, I, um, I would just mention probably a couple of brief things because I think this will uh, fit nicely with uh, our conversation about the secular because now we're into the time periods that Charles Taylor will label the secularity one, two, and three. Um, but the Enlightenment is a result of the Reformation. It's a result of the Renaissance in the sense that in both of those movements, there's an appeal towards human reason and uh, already reality or external reality in the way we perceive it doesn't necessarily have meaning. So how do we how do we talk about anything that's true at this point? How do we talk about the world in a way that makes sense? And that's what you get in the Enlightenment is uh, we're enlightened because we figured out that the only thing we can trust is our own reason. And so now we're going to create a world that's much better than these the violent world that religion has created. And I think that's the narrative there. Um, that then leads into sort of the freedom to be able to have an idealism, to be romantic about things. Well, first you have to um, create the space to have those kind of kinds of conversations that who we are as human beings is, is sort of autonomous reason. We're, we're brilliant. We're creating a new world. We're uh, creating the progress that we're all benefiting from. And that that's a result of the reaction that you have to the classical synthesis being dissolved. And I don't know if this sounds alien to people, but what maybe will make it sound less alien is to recognize that with the Enlightenment, then, is very much the development of the pietistic understanding that I think still characterizes uh, nearly every frame of Protestant Christianity. 
Yes. So we could talk about somebody like Jakob Spener, who is at the University of Halle in Germany, which is sort of a center for pietism. And um, all of a sudden, uh, since most people are turning towards reason and science and um, scientism, perhaps is a better way of thinking about that, (laughs) in the secular or a secular that is characterized by a change in the conditions for belief so that now belief can just be reasonable. We can be rational about everything in the sense that human reason is the key element for our discovery of God and what God thinks. Um, Well, how do you ensure people are still going to be good and moral and ethical? And there's a turn towards inward holiness. So, you know, it doesn't really matter what's happening in the world as long as you are holy in your inner self. And so it it is this you know what you get in the uh, classical uh, you know modernism with Schleiermacher uh, his notion of uh, that religion ultimately is reduced to a kind of feeling of dependence upon God uh, that it is the inner moves so it is an inner you know the uh, uh, apprehension uh, you know it, it's all it, it's language that is very much you know as with Descartes it is uh, that in a sense the religious sensibility has moved into the same realm of human interiority yes yeah which stems from this privileging of human reason uh, which stems from being able to think about human reason as separate from something like a God-instilled virtue. And we'll stop there. Uh, the, uh, I, it's a quick rundown, but if we can, I think we've got the idea uh, that here is the beginnings then. I mean, we really already have the beginnings, the stirrings of the notion of the secular. And, you know, you could talk about Max Weber, you could talk about yeah, actually, my story of the bank robber is is anachronistic. There are no banks to rob, uh, <laughs> but there are soon going to be banks to rob. That's but I, ironically, with the rise of the uh, capitalism, uh, the idea of the entire the banking system, modern monetary system, uh, what comes with that then is the uh, the the alternative realities of secularism. And we'll, we can, uh, we can uh, get into that uh, in part two, the concept of the secular, and we'll talk about uh, uh, Taylor, uh, Charles Taylor. Don't, don't confuse Taylor. There's, there's a Mark Taylor who's a lesser figure, and there's Charles Taylor. <laughs> uh, I don't mean to say, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, and, and Milbank, uh, John Milbank. Thank you, John. Yes, thank you. It's been a good conversation. All right.